please stay tuned to the end of this program or see the show notes for important information regarding today's speakers and the content of this podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Allergy Talk, a roundup of the latest in the field of allergy immunology by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For today's episode, we will be reviewing articles from the November-December 2020 issue of Allergy Watch, a bi-monthly publication which provides research summaries to college members from the major journals in allergy and immunology. And you can also earn CME credit by listing this podcast for information about CME credit or to read archived issues of Allergy Watch. Head over to college.acaai.org slash publications slash Allergy Watch. And also... Please watch out for continued discussion on this topic on the ACAAI community on Doc Matter. We'll have key talk takeaways and engaging questions and answers with the opportunity of ongoing conversation about today's topic. Hello, everyone. My name is Jerry Lee. I'm an associate professor at Emory University and the co-host of Allergy Talk. I'm joined once again by my two co-hosts. First, Dr. Stan Feynman. Hi, Jerry, and uh, hello, everybody. Glad to be here. I'm Stan Feynman. I'm an allergist at Atlanta Allergy and uh, Practice, and I'm also clinical faculty at Emory and a past president of the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, and editor-in-chief of Allergy Watch. And the third chair is Dr. Marin Curavilla. Hello, everyone. This is Marin Curavilla, and I'm an assistant professor of allergy and immunology at Emory University. Well, uh, we're about to close out 2020 with our last podcast of the year. And so we have a bunch of interesting articles from the latest issue. The first, we'll start with articles regarding asthma for this episode. And so I wanted to start with this article that was published in JACI. The background on this is further understanding of what we already know, which is we know that we are in the season, well, normally, of viral infections exacerbating asthma. Now, clearly, in the middle of a global pandemic, people are actually taking immense precautions about acquiring viral infections with social distancing and virtual school. So I'd actually be very curious about the exacerbation rate once we look at the epidemiology. But traditionally, we know the September epidemic. School starts in August, and then after passing infections acquired from school and in general, indoor living, there's increased passage of viral infections and increase of exacerbations. And one of the most intriguing examinations on how to mitigate this was the inner city anti-IgE therapy for asthma study, the ICATA study. Now, initially it was an examination of allergic children and the effect of anti-IgE therapy. But they saw this incredible abrogation of the seasonal exacerbation. We normally expect around this time in the fall season. But, you know, the problem with studies like this is we don't actually know the kinetics or how it starts. And unfortunately, the only way to really catch the early changes with viral-induced exacerbations, unfortunately, is inducing experimentally. So that's a very interesting study that they did here. They had two parallel studies. The first one looked at atopic asthmatics versus controls, healthy controls, you know, no allergy, no asthma. And they induced experimental runovirus infection and 
looked at multiple parameters, including lung function and blood eosinophils and other biomarkers to really chart the course on what happens in asthma patients, specifically after a rhinovirus infection. Now, I already told you about the effect of anti-IG on viral induced exacerbation. So a parallel study was looking at asthma patients versus controls and the effect of anti-IG on this response. Now, clearly there is some considerations of potentially spreading rhinovirus in the community. So they actually, after a one-week run-in, they actually isolated people in a hotel for about four days after that initial inoculation. But they had an observation period about three weeks total after the initial inoculation. And for the anti-IgE part of the trial, they had about a two-month run-in where they were receiving omeluzumab every two weeks. So the primary outcome of the studies were very interested in symptoms, but clearly they looked at spirometry and blood eosinophils and other immunologic parameters. And what they found was, at least in the first part, which is just asthma versus controls, the changes that occur after rhinovirus infection occur quite early. And what I mean by quite early is, is that pretty much in the first few days, patients are experiencing lower respiratory infections, but maybe about day two. And the actual decrement in lung function occurs on day one. So it is a very rapid response to infection in the vulnerable population of asthma. And that correlates with certain biologic parameters, including increase of eosinophil counts at day two. Now, eventually, the asthma patients recover somewhat. They have an improvement in their symptoms. But the more interesting thing is they have this sort of rebound effect around day 15 to 20, where they have this second peak of respiratory tract symptoms distal to the initial infection. And that actually, you know, the, they only followed these patients three weeks after infection, but they had continued significantly increased respiratory tract symptoms at the end of the study at day 21. Now, I told you about the initial decrement in FEV1 after infection. The other thing that was interesting is that that decrease in FEV1 still persisted to three weeks after initial infection. So, you know, they may have an improved, a slight improvement overall. I mean, they still had some symptoms, but they still had this long-lasting decrement of one. So the, the echoes of our infection on asthmatics seems to be very long-lasting, though, again, we're not exactly sure how long it ends up being. Now, what's the effect of anti-IG? So in the parallel study, if you administer anti-IG two months prior to inoculating with runovirus, it aggregates mostly the effect. So they had protection of the loss of lung function. They had protection against the symptoms caused by the rhinovirus infection. And that increase in eosinophilia also is aggregated. And, and again, you would have sort of expect that. And it occurs very early. It occurs even that early rise in the first four days of tre treatment, it works immediately. So one of the findings we knew about, you know, that anti-IG is particularly useful for viral-induced exacerbations, but I thought was more interesting was just how long patients could be significantly affected, even though 
technically they had an infection three weeks later. And you wonder, you know, especially patients who are exposed to multiple infections, maybe, you know, back-to-back infections, this is a compounding effect. Should we, again, counsel our patients to be evaluated after infections to correct some of this potential inflammation and vulnerability in their interim? It remains to be seen how many patients are significantly affected by viral infections and whether interventions should be done. I think the other thing is, you know, we looked at anti-IG here, but as we know, the latest asthma guidelines is suggesting for viral induced exacerbations in certain patients to use inhaled steroids, at least in the 0-4 population, you know, toddler wheezers starting inhaled steroid at the first sign of infection, obviously the steroid naive patients. Again, that wasn't studied here. Potentially that could, again, provide some modicum of infection, though it does require the patient to recognize the first sign of illness, which may or may not be in time to abrogate some of these effects. So this is different from the co-seasonal administration of omalizumab that was described in the inner, by the Inner City Asthma Consortium. Uh, it's omalizumab in uh, childhood asthmatics a few years ago. I believe that's the way older study. Yeah, way the one older. I was and I think that also demonstrated, a, I think, an overall decrease in the, I think, the frequency of infections as well as the severity of infections, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly if we think about what omelizumab or other anti-IG therapies have a track record for, it's definitely that antiviral effect in the atopic population. I'm not sure at least to my knowledge, if that's been replicated in other biologics, I that's beyond my <laughs> knowledge base. I, I don't think so. It would be interesting to see the effects of dupelumab. Like as you were saying, you know, we've known for a long time that IgE itself appears to um, be proviral in a sense that it can actually cross-link on plasma cytodendritic cells in allergic asthmatics and it can be associated with reduced interferon secretion and upregulate type 2 inflammatory cytokines and potentially amplify this virus-induced allergic inflammation. So it has been associated with increased IL-4 and IL-13 as well. So it would be interesting also to see um, the effect of dupilumab in this population. It probably would. Uh, did they look at the cytokines, Jerry? In this particular study, it was mainly just peripheral blood. So uh, at least I did not see specific cytokine information reported out. Marin's probably right. It, it might abrogate the newer biologics, uh, might also abrogate that same response. But I'm not surprised that they found the lung function abnormalities even three weeks after the infection. I mean, we've, we've known that for a while. We've certainly uh, treat patients accordingly. Yeah, I think we should definitely counsel patients that with these infections, you know, we should make sure that even though, and especially I'm talking about the patients who are not on daily control of therapy, they probably need something. They're probably going to need something because they're going to have some sort of inflammation. And so that does make sense to have that anti-inflammatory therapy associated with any sort of viral trigger. I mean, it does make sense that patients probably need something to restore them to normal lung function, even though it may be subclinical. Okay, well, Marin, I think you also have a very interesting study as well, and almost a warning about how we're 
using Methicolin Challenge. Right. So this is a paper that was published earlier this year in Chest and reviewed by Sham Joshi for Allergy Watch. It just talks about the caveats uh, when interpreting positive bronchodilator responsiveness testing as well as methicoline challenges to confirm diagnoses of suspected asthma. Since it has been recognized that several different factors can affect the reliability of methicoline challenges, and personally, I've noticed that the dual criteria of a 200cc increase and a 12% increase in FEV1 or FVC after a bronchodilator tends to be a little insensitive in some asthmatics. So this was a Canadian study that looked at the performance of both of these methods and any clinical predictors that would influence the performance of these tests. And they included about 500 subjects, adults, with physician-diagnosed asthma within the past five years, and a negative bronchodilator responsiveness result. So these patients returned for a methicoline challenge, and among patients who were on baseline controller medications, if the first methicoline challenge was negative, the medications were gradually tapered, and then these patients went underwent serial methicoline challenges until they achieved a negative result defined as a provocative concentration 20 of greater than 8 after three weeks of therapy. So interestingly, what they found is that of these 500 patients who had a negative bronchodilator responsiveness test, 43% had positive methicoline challenge, that is a false negative bronchodilator responsiveness test, and it ended up having a negative predictive value of 57%. And what they found was that patients who had a baseline airflow limitation were more likely to have a positive methicoline challenge. And each unit of increase in the FEV1 FEC ratio was associated with lower risk of having a positive methicoline challenge. So then they looked at patients with negative bronchodilator responsiveness and negative methicoline challenges who were on controllers. And 94 of these patients performed serial methicoline challenges with tapering of their baseline controller medications. And they found that 20% of these converted eventually to a positive methicoline challenge. That is the negative predictive value for a methicoline challenge on controllers was about 80%. And then they followed up some of these patients at six months and 12 months and even more interestingly, methicoline challenge testing was shown to spontaneously convert to positive in 15% with negative baseline testing over a six-month period. And especially subjects with a sort of equivocal prov provocative concentration 20, that is between 8 and 16 milligrams per ml, were more significantly likely to convert to a positive methicoline challenge as opposed to those with a PC20 that was greater than 16. The message um, that was conveyed in this paper and discussed on Allergy Watch was that if you have a patient with a high pretest probability of asthma, that is physician diagnosed asthma, a significant proportion of these, despite having negative bronchodilator responsiveness testing, can have positive methicoline challenges independent of controller medication use, and in patients with clinically suspected disease, 
I strongly feel like this bronchodilator responsiveness criterion of 12% and greater than 200 cc's change in the FEV1 or FEC is a little arbitrary because in the setting of a baseline airflow limitation, even if you have a negative bronchodilator responsiveness test, it can still predict a positive methacholine challenge. So it sort of reinforced what we already know, and at least I practice, that a negative bronchodilator responsiveness test would not alter my decision to prescribe a trial of controller therapy in patients with asthma-like symptoms. But what actually surprised me was the rate of spontaneous conversion of methacholine challenges at about 15%. So it's important to keep in mind that in patients who have a PC20 of 8 to 16 on methacholine challenge, a trial of asthma therapy in the setting of consistent clinical symptoms is still warranted. The others did discuss that they found a trend towards a higher chance of this conversion spontaneously to a positive methacholine challenge if tested in the springtime, as compared with other seasons, perhaps due to a higher trigger exposure burden. And this sort of serves to reinforce the importance of testing patients in the appropriate or symptomatic season before ruling out the disease. Another possibility for a false negative methacholine challenge is underlying exercise-induced asthma, which is an asthma phenotype that tends to be more difficult to diagnose with methacholine challenge testing, especially in athletes. So in patients in whom a high clinical suspicion of asthma remains, and especially if they have a provocative concentration 20 between 8 and 16, either they can be periodically retested or we can even consider allowing these PC20s between 8 and 16 to be considered positive in an appropriate clinical context, since this appears to provide a better correlation with clinical judgment and physician diagnosis of asthma. So Sean Joshi's bottom line in Allergy Watch was that a negative methacholine challenge needs to be interpreted with caution in the appropriate clinical context. Baron, can I ask you about this study? Sure. They did not do exhaled nitric oxide, which has been now it's uh, you know recommended in the guidelines that were just published uh, about a week or two ago. Right. Do you have any thoughts on that? Where would that fit in there? Would you think that would help to make a determination of you know use of controllers or whether or not it's a you know reactive airways? It would certainly support the decision to use controllers in the correct clinical context, but even without. If the clinical history is suggestive, I don't necessarily go by absolute criteria for bronchodilator responsiveness. I don't know how both of you tend to practice. I was going to ask that question about chasing some sort of documentation of reversibility on paper for the diagnosis of asthma. I absolutely agree that that is important to convince yourself that you're treating the right thing and the medications are appropriate. So, you know, we're going to try to taper therapy if someone's doing better, the usual things. But how many patients in your asthma clinic, you, you chase this, that if you don't have it with bronchodilator response, you must get a methacholine challenge and prove it. I maybe don't do that as much as I should, but I'd love to get other practice opinions on that. So as of this year, methacholine challenges were all on hold for most of the year due to COVID. 
so it's very difficult for us to get methicoline challenges on our patients. We don't do them in our office, and we have to send them to the pulmonary labs. And it's very labor-intensive tests. So I agree with you that it's not an easy thing to, to, to obtain. So I used to order these fairly frequently until this year when the option was sort of taken away from me by COVID, and we just stopped doing methicoline challenges for a long time at Emory. But you were ordering them frequently, so that's what I want to make sure I'm providing the best asthma care in your opinion, who are you ordering them on? And patients in whom I don't necessarily have a high clinical suspicion for asthma. So it's more of a rule out than a rule in. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely have patients where I doubt the history of asthma. And certainly I'm going to try to wean them off their medications try to do methicoline challenge. But this this study seems to imply that there's these high pretest probability patients who are getting methicoline challenges. And I'm not sure that occurs in my, you know, I, I'm not sure if I ever create that situation very often. That's what I was trying to say, I guess. Right. And in patients in whom I strongly suspect have a clinical history that's compatible with asthma, I would probably lean more towards doing an empiric trial of therapy before pushing for a methicoline challenge. See, I would agree with that, especially since it's hard for us to get methicoline challenges. I think an empiric trial of controller is, 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 is a good idea. It works. It helps us. But I like your point about exhaled nitric oxide. Certainly, we're going to use all the information we have for these patients with uncertainty. And clearly, for the patient where we're not sure what's going on, if they're steroid naive, I think exhaled nitric oxide would definitely assist us in the diagnosis. Clearly not unilaterally, but you know, would definitely assist us in the diagnosis. So we have one more article to go over and stand. We're learning more and more about these biologics, but we always struggle who responds to which medication. So sounds like you have some further information to help us. So this is an article from CHEST, the journal CHEST, entitled The Real World Effectiveness and Characteristics of a Super Responder to Mepolizumab in Severe Eosinophilic Asthma. And it was reviewed by Dr. Josie in the Allergy Watch, and we'll talk about his comment in just a minute. And we all know that mepolizumab is an anti-IL-5, and there have been extensive phase three you know, studies looking at whether it's efficacious, uh, which it's been shown to be and has been approved. It reduces exacerbations. It improves asthma control. It improves quality of life and lung function. Also, steroid exposure is reduced. And there have been placebo trials showing that there's a, a variety of range of response in, in treatment of these patients. So, and that's what this paper is, is trying to look at. When you look at the phase three trials, the serious study was designed to assess steroid sparing efficacy with mepolizumab. And 14% of the patients were able to completely stop their maintenance oral steroid treatment, whereas 36% of the patients were unable to reduce their steroids at all, or they withdrew from the study. So it didn't work on everybody. Moreover, then there were the other phase three trials they called in the DREAM and the Busca uh, uh, studies and also the COSMO study, which was an extensive study. These studies found that it was apparent that some of the subjects continued to have exacerbations while others 
were made exacerbation-free of treatment with uh, mepolizumab. So the question is, in these patients, you know, which of the patients are going to respond, which are potentially super responders? And again, like Jerry said in his introduction, we're having we want to try to figure out when to use these biologics and what types of patients. So this was an analysis of 99 patients who had severe eosinophilic asthma. They were treated with mepolizumab, the 100 milligram dose, sub-Q for at least a 16-week period. It was in the United Kingdom. It was a tertiary asthma clinic. And then at 16, at 24, and at 52 weeks, the patients were then categorized as either responders or non-responders. And the way they defined that response included a 50% reduction in exacerbation rate. And for patients who were on maintenance steroids, at least a 50% reduction in prednisone dosage. So the patients who remained free of exacerbations and maintenance oral steroids at 12 months were classified as super responders. In other words, if they continue to have that good response for the 12 months. So mepolizumab led to a 54% reduction in exacerbation frequency from 4 to 1.86 per year of exacerbations over the, you know, the, of the uh, one-year period. And overall, for, let's see, for the 68 patients receiving maintenance steroids at baseline, the daily median dose of the steroids reduced from 10 milligrams per day to zero. They were able to stop it. And 57% of the patients were able to stop taking their steroid completely. And overall, 57% of the patients were classified as responders, and 28% were as super responders because they continued for the full year. So the baseline characteristics associated with response to mepolezomib included nasal polyps, lower asthma control questionnaire, the ACT score that we all know, and also a lower body mass index. So among the patients receiving the maintenance oral steroids at baseline, the lower prednisone dose was also associated with this positive response. So the responder status at 52 weeks was correctly identified at 16 weeks. So you could predict it in 80% of the patients and at 24 weeks in 90% of the patients, which kind of implies to me that these patients are going to respond pretty quickly, really in the first few months of treatment and, you know, continue. So I think we can talk about that, whether that really helps us decide, you know, to continue using this or not, really after about four months of, uh, of treatment here. So in the real world cohort, nearly three quarters of patients with severe eosinophilic asthma have a clinical response to mepolizumab based on exacerbation rate or the steroid requirement, and nearly 30% of the patients were considered super, super responders. So again, the baseline characteristics of this good response were first, having nasal polyps, second, a lower body mass index, and also a lower steroid dose. And what Dr. Josie said is that basically to summarize, he felt that uh, you know, we need to follow these types of uh, parameters to help us predict who's going to be responsive and who's not going to be responsive. And he felt that more studies need to be done to suggest this, you know, this weight-based doses, so to speak. Maybe, maybe some of the patients didn't respond because they might need to use a different IL-5 or something else. But uh, the bottom line is some are going to respond and some are not. And that was the purpose of this study. So I think the first thing that struck, sort of stuck out to me was uh, just how many people did not respond. And 
the population that did not respond was actually more interesting to me than the super responders because I feel like I already know just sort of how to select people who may respond to anti-IL-5 therapies. But what I would just really like to see characterized more are those baseline features or factors that are associated with non-responsiveness. Because I don't know how often either of you see severe eosinophilic asthma that's just not touched by any of the IL-5s. Because I do see it more frequently than I would like. And we don't just don't really know a lot about it. There was this recent publication that linked these, this non-responder phenotype with a putative autoimmune underlying mechanism based on their positive sputum antibody profiles and sort of suggesting that it was complement activation by immune complexes um, with IL- and the anti-IL-5 that was responsible for worsening of disease or lack of responsiveness, but I just don't know what that's supposed to look like clinically. That's really interesting. So the suggestion from that study is that is a biomarker, sputum... Autoantibodies, correct. Autoantibodies. Interesting. I, I think what also is surprising is... I thought the higher eosinophil count, the better, but you know that didn't pan out of this study. I, I mean, it clearly suggests that there is multiple roads leading to this issue, and it's some of the simplistic things that we're doing is a good first step. But now, as we've delved in deeper to this, there is clearly multiple mechanisms that anti-IL five does not adequately hit and eosinophils are a biomarker of something, but clearly is not the main mechanism. The eosinophil is not the main driver, which we know, but I I guess we just have to remind ourselves. I think the other point I like Stan brought up is this obese asthma phenotype and the concern people have had about a single dose for everybody. I wasn't sure if anyone in the group wants to pull the trigger on IV therapy, I, I just feel that it is very inconvenient. And clearly and now in the pandemic, people are not going to come in. So does that mean we should not use this very mepolizumab in obese patients? I'm not sure if, that, if that's an overinterpretation or not. Well, I, I sort of agree with uh, you in terms of thinking about that. And that's what Dr. Josie was saying in his summary too. And I personally don't have that much experience with reslizumab, but the fact that it is weight-based, you know, IV now, but, uh, you know, we have people coming to our office getting a variety of different injections for allergy shots and also uh, biologics. And I don't think that that, even with COVID, as long as you take the precautions, it's not going to impact your therapy. So uh, I think it's something we need to think about, especially if patients aren't responding, you know, to a to an anti-IL-5 that, you know, like a mepolizumab. So would you switch to rizlizumab in that case or another biologic altogether with a different mechanism? That's a great question, and I do not know the answer. I think it would depend on the patient and some of the other characteristics. Right. And just to sort of expound on that, I thought the association with super responders and underlying nasal polyps was interesting with mepolizumab because we've known for a long time that this phenotype of severe eosinophilic asthma and nasal polyps overall just confers a higher rate of responsiveness to anti-IL-5s. But 
And I don't know if either of you have seen this, but I have certainly seen it. And it's also been reported a couple of times in uh, the journals is that there's often this discrepancy in responsiveness between upper airway symptoms and lower airway symptoms. That is, the asthma improves significantly, but the nasal polyps do not. So even though nasal polyps are a marker for responsiveness to the asthma component of severe eosinophilic disease, I often just go straight to dipilumab in these patients. Yeah, and I, I think the data up to now supports that. I, I know there, you know, we now we have the anti-IG indication and you know other indications are you know coming down the pike. But clearly, if we have a biologic to date that shows benefit in the upper and lower airway and affects lung function, I have to see how the other studies pan out. But right now, dipilomat is it. I'm not sure if you disagree with that. It hits everything. That's what I'm trying to say. Well, it's interesting that, you, I mean, you know, as you said, the FDA just approved, uh, you know, omalizumab now for nasal polyps, you know, as well as asthma. So, uh, you know, we'll have to see how that compares in terms of the response to some of the uh, patients. I think, okay, I thought we learned some more, but we're still struggling. That, I think is the conclusion of this discussion. So I hope you found this podcast useful. I know that I learned a lot today. And if you do enjoy what you're listening to and like to support us, please rate our podcast, but also give us feedback. That email is allergytalkoneword at acaai.org. And please, again, join the conversation on DocMatter to discuss these interesting articles. We welcome your input and your personal experiences and some of the conundrums we're experiencing. And we will catch you for the next episode. Have a wonderful day, everybody. The ACAAI is presenting this podcast for educational purposes only. It is not medical advice or intended to replace the judgment of a licensed physician. The college is not responsible for any claims related to the procedures, professionals, products, or methods discussed in the podcast, and it does not approve or endorse any products, professionals, services, or methods that might be referenced. Today's speakers have the following disclosures. Dr. Lee has nothing to disclose. Dr. Caravilla has been a speaker and consultant for GlaxoSmithKline, and Dr. Feynman has been a speaker for Takeda and has done research with AI Immune, DBB, and BioChrist.